dear listener, you are in for a treat. Return guest Ian Boswell is once again on the show today. Now, given our jobs, given our types of work, given our geographic location here in Vermont, Ian and I, we cross paths fairly often. But the last time we crossed paths and recorded a conversation for King of the Ride was July of 2019. Lots has happened, of course, in those few short years. Ian retired from his time in the world tour later that season. Sure, obviously a pandemic has occurred. Laura and I had just recently attended his wedding. He has since won Unbound. He's become a dad. He and his wife got a dog, for Pete's sake. A lot has happened, and I encourage you to do what I did just recently, which is go back into the archives and check out episode number 37. That presents something of an interesting timestamp on what was going on in Ian's life then, just as this conversation with the contemporary Ian Boswell of today presents a timestamp of what's going on right now. Ian has also started a podcast, Breakfast with Boz, and I've been a guest on his show twice before today. So this is something of a cross-mogination of sorts, because anytime Ian and I get together, we both are thinking, hmm, this conversation would make for some really good podcast fodder. Which is all to say, the recording that you are about to hear between the two of us can also be heard on Breakfast with Boz's podcast as well. Please go check that out. Not this particular episode, but the podcast in general. This conversation is the first in what I'm going to create as a multi-part series, as Gravel starts to take a look in the mirror. Now, there is no formal title of statesmanship in this burgeoning Gravel community. I've, of course, been at it since the time before we'd call it Gravel. Uh, I'd say I started dipping my toe in Gravel in 2016. But given my time in this facet of the sport, given my time in the sport of cycling in general, Given Ian's time in the sport, we both, I think we both appreciate what each other has to say in terms of perspective, relative views on his growth, its direction, its faults, its strengths, its weaknesses, its fun. I have some other great guests coming up as well. Lawrence Tendam, of course, our favorite Dutch pro cyclist. Pete Stetna will be coming up here shortly. Each rider has their perspectives, their goals, their motivations, their, their nebulous crystal balls for what the growth of gravel means to them. So as it pertains to today, Ian came to visit our house here in Vermont. He had a flight out of Burlington early the next day, and Laura and I happened to live about an hour closer to the airport than he. So Ian came on over, we went for a ride, we had a great dinner. Frankly, we spent the entire day talking and then finally hit the record button deep into the evening. Hopefully there is still something worth listening to here after hanging out all day. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. But first, my friends, I am not kidding when I tell you that I am a dyed-in-the-wool Athletic Greens user. From the first day that I received it in the mail, I look forward to mixing it up as a daily dose and taking it right down the hatch. I appreciate AG1's simplicity of use, contrasted with the complexity involved in the delivery of nutrients. It's super easy. It is one scoop, or given how much we travel, I love the very easy pre-measured travel packs. Mix that into water, shake it up, and then drink it right down. It is tasty, first and foremost. It's derived from real foods. It's giving me this level of insurance that my day's nutrients are already off to the very best start possible, and that is why I start my day every day with AG1. Bonus, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free year's supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs. Yes, those are the ones that I love using of AG1 with your first purchase. 
All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Ted King. Again, athleticgreens.com slash Ted King to take ownership over your health and pick up your ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now on to the show. This is a co-branded, co-hosted podcast. I've actually, yes. as, a, as a podcast, I don't know if you've actually ever had this. Have you ever had a co-host on your podcast? Um, Bobby Wintle. The year was probably 2018, and we had the the identical idea that we would record the same conversation, put it out on either of our podcasts. I think Bobby has had maybe three episodes of his podcast career as host, and. Uh, so that is the long-winded way of saying yes. I've done it once. You? Yeah, I guess. Um, well, when I first started this podcast and the tour in 2018, Marshall, my buddy, was actually the host, and uh-huh. I was the guest co-host. I uh-huh. guess. Um, Terrific. But it's something I've always podcast. thought about. Yeah. Well, we should say we are at your house in Richmond. Uh-huh. This is actually the third time you've been on my podcast since i've started this restarted this in 2020 uh-huh. you have been an annual guest oh wow the only annual guest thus far i'm flattered that's, um, that's fantastic i didn't even I, you'd think that i would remember that it's been three times but i'd only counted two so yeah i guess this is the second time i've been on your podcast <laughs> yes correct um i was thinking we'll get into this i think i was sitting on an adjacent chair in 20 20? Yep, okay. Talking about it's coming back to me. gravel racing. Yeah. But anyways, we just had a lovely dinner. We did a bike ride. We had some tacos. We had some drinks. Mm-hmm. We've got a little post-dinner bourbon. But I want to start this episode, and you can then do a second start if you would like, mm-hmm. with a little game. Oh, wow. And this game is Rosebud Thorn. Okay. Have you ever played it? Yes. Uh, I played it this summer at the tail end of our van trip where it was high low bitch didn't know okay yeah there's yeah, so rose, i gotta, yeah, I gotta I've think never about rosebud thorn i'm not familiar with a bud give me the rules for the sake of our listeners so rosebud thorn you can also do mountain river valley so right. like so rosebud thorn rose what did you like the most uh-huh. um thorn what was the worst right. what did you get poked by and bud what are you most looking forward to because a bud hasn't yet yeah, 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 yeah. blossomed or bloomed yeah. So my question is, can you give me a rose? I mean, we're sitting here, it's October, well, almost Halloween. Uh-huh. Uh, the season of 2022 is over. Uh-huh. So rosebud thorn of the 2022 gravel calendar. Wow. Wow. Um, I'll preface my answer by saying I listen to your podcast and enjoy it a lot. And I'm curious how much uh, effort goes into your, like, how much are your wheels turning right before the conversation happens, right before you hit record? Because for me, in that final half hour, I'm thinking of this exact thing. Like, what is the opening of a conversation? What's the opening of a podcast? And maybe I've thought about it, like, two days before. I know what the opening question is going to be. Um, I just went to the bathroom and I thought, oh, this would be a nice way to start, <laughs> start the conversation. Okay. Um, well, we just had a we just had a, a nice conversation with you and your wife at the dinner table. Yes. And I feel like we needed a bit of a reset yes. before recording. Yes. So I thought rosebud thorn is a nice way to reflect mm-hmm. on the season and mm-hmm. also to look forward mm-hmm. to what is next. Okay, um, rose. 
because I'm going to interpret the rules as I wish, um, the 2022 season had its rose in the form of our van trip. And I'm saying I'm interpreting the rules because it's not purely an event. I didn't have like this result that I love. Uh, the van trip, which began uh, one week after Rooted Vermont, was fantastic. We hit the road, family of four, first time ever doing a van trip. We went on an indefinite departure. So Laura and I have talked about how it could have been terrible. We might have turned around literally within the first hour or three hours or three days, but it ended up turning out to be a three, uh, two-month trip. That is in direct parallel or contrast, depending on how you interpret it, to my thorn, which is my pulmonary embolism, uh, diagnosed in mid-late July. So for those listening, pulmonary embolism is a blood clot that has made its way to my lung. And yeah, that's just sucked in so many ways. Um, it means I'm on blood thinners and therefore the to be in the front of a race, to be bumping elbows, is just too dangerous. Bike racing has gotten very dangerous. I don't know if you've noticed that out there on the gravel roads. Uh, so, I don't know. I mean, those two go in tandem because then it, the van trip turned out to be this really philanthropic, fun thing where I, I uh, was able to do events and not race but ride hard and, and generate a whole lot of loot for some great beneficiaries. And so my bud would be the prospect in January of 2023 to come off my blood thinners and resume some semblance of competition because, I don't know. Uh, you miss it. I miss it. You know, there's... Yeah. Riding fast with strong people is fun. It is. And I've had, I've had slivers of that in the past two months, uh, last best ride and RPI and, and, and uh, Big Sugar this past weekend, but... Yeah, it ain't quite the same, so I look forward to, to something new. That was my long-winded responses. Ian, I've got a game for you. Okay, let's play tips. High, low, bet you didn't know. And so bet you didn't know is, actually, uh, yeah, I'll give it for the, for the entire year. Um, what is something that we might not have known? High, low, what you didn't know. Um, goodness, let me think here. The high of the year probably would have have been... Um, I would have to say from a racing standpoint, probably returning to Unbound and being on the podium again, yeah. because I don't, I don't want to say that last year was a fluke, um, but it was, I think from myself and I think a lot of people, not unexpected, but kind of, I didn't expect to win and to go back this year and to be in contention. I was like, oh wow, I could, I did it again, mm-hmm. um, which was cool. Um, also, I think I'd put, I had more pressure on myself and expectation going into this year than I did last year. Um, I also had one of my first ever flat tires. In, well, my first ever flat tire in a gravel race. I take that back. I did flat in migration the year before, but that was slightly different. Your first flat was at this year's Unbound? Uh, well, I, I did, actually did flat last year at migration gravel race. Okay. That was, right. I mean, it wasn't as kind of crucial. Yeah. Um, so I learned how to use tire plugs, yes. which is good. I used four, three of which I made a bigger hole in the tire before I actually <laughs> plugged the tire. Um, my low point of the year would have been, I guess the second part of the year, I didn't race much at all. Um, and we'll get into that, and that is my what you didn't know. Cool. Yeah. So in the end of June, um, I went to a race in Canada, the 
Okanagan Graveler. And on the way home somewhere, myself and my whole family got COVID. And that affected me for almost two months. So mm-hmm. I had, and actually I listened to your podcast about uh, when you spoke to the cardiologist down at Dr. Mass. Aaron Baggis. Yes. Yeah. Um, which is actually really informative. And I'm not sure if you sent it to me or someone else sent it to me and said, hey, you should listen to this. Because yeah. he, he talked about some of the you know, yeah. cardiac conditions that have come through athletes who have had COVID. And so there's like a two-month spell there where I didn't really train. I mean, I rode my bike a little bit, but I just couldn't, I couldn't go hard. Mm-hmm. And that kind of led me to not being able to train or prepare for like the second half of the season, you know, SBT and I guess, you know, rooted Vermont, Vermont Overland. Um, you know, I guess I did finally kind of get back to riding hard at Gravel Locos in Pueblo. Mm-hmm. But I, that kind of was a, it was a weird, uh, similar to you, I enjoyed going to races and seeing the different side of the events. You know, I came to, to your event here in Rooted and I got a ride with some friends and I was like, this is actually really fun. Yeah. It's like, I've been doing this gravel stuff for a year and a half now. I'd never just gone to an event to ride for fun and to see like the, the party at the back, you know, the full, I've seen the full mullet now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, like you, I still love riding hard. I love like testing myself and seeing what I'm capable of. And so to not be able to do that wasn't, I mean, it was, it was kind of a bit of a relief because I did have a decent first part of the season. But I did miss out on, you know, going back to some events that I really enjoyed last year that I didn't get a race this year. You know, Rooted, Overland, SBT. Mm-hmm. But yeah, sometimes that's how the cookie crumbles at our old age, Ted. Exactly. We are not whippersnappers. Okay. Uh, so that was your low segue into Betch didn't know. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, I, th- I think I had COVID and I didn't really, I told, I mean, people knew I had COVID, but it, I guess people yeah. maybe didn't know that long COVID. I had long COVID. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you just said, uh, you know, you said you've experienced gravel for a year and a half, which sounds so, such a short period of time in the grand scheme of things. But at the same time, I and probably many of our listeners and, and probably the global cycling community would consider you something of a staple of the gravel cycling community as a result of having success at Unbound and doing it even a year before a lot of the folks have been doing it. Uh, <laughs> so in your short time in gravel, what have you noticed? Well, this is actually why I came over to your house to stay for the night and, and ask you, because I wanted to ask you, because you started Gravel in 2016. Yeah. Um, and I think we would both attest to, and on the drive over, I will say I listened to your podcast as well with one of my fellow Oregonians, Carl Decker, which is a really fascinating episode. Um, it has changed a lot. And I don't know what change you have seen from 2016 until now, yeah. but in the last 12 months, it has changed astronomically. It has become way more competitive, way more serious. And, you know, I guess, you know, I had this weird kind of opportunity where I stopped racing on the road. I retired in 2019. So 2020 was my first year as not a professional cyclist Mm -hmm. or professional road cyclist. People might get mad at me for saying I'm not a professional cyclist, but I hear you. I, you know, then we hit the pandemic. And so I didn't race that entire year. And the first race I did was rule of three. And then I came back and did the second race was unbound. And, you know, I won that. And I was like, wow, this is like, this is awesome. Like I'm, I was still riding. I was like, you know, pushing myself, but I wasn't training. I was like very much enjoying the, what gravel allowed me to do. Mm -hmm. I had this very balanced life. And in the summer I could still camp and, you know, ride my bike for fun and, you know, kind of just 
live this life that I'd always kind of thought was like the perfect balance. And for whatever reason, I think because of the success I had in 2021, I came into this year like more stressed. Mm-hmm. You know, you start to look at other people's rides on Strava, you know, especially you. You're, I mean, you only live an hour and a half away from me, but the weather is way different. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. how is Ted doing a 60-mile ride today? I'm like, you you know, I can't, it's snowing at my house. There's no way I can get out. Your nearest paved road is like four miles away. Yeah. Um, so I just felt this like increased level of stress and, and expectation of like, you know, what I guess I knew I was capable of. But what I guess I realized was, you know, more challenging to actually achieve. Um, and then a lot of new players came to the gravel scene this year, you know, whether it was someone like, you know, Keegan or Russell or, you know, even more, you know, world tour riders who I had raced against, you know, someone like Nathan Haas came this year and, you know, Cam Worf was at Unbound. And I just felt like it got very serious. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I told this to you before, I had this like kind of snapshot epiphany at uh, the Sea Otter, the first race of the Lifetime Grand Prix. Or you were an observer. I was an observer. You were, you were a media person. I, I was with my microphone at the finish line. Uh-huh. And I saw yourself and Pete and Alex and Keel, all riders in an almost identical situation to me. We left yeah. the world tour. We came to gravel because we wanted it to be fun and different and yeah. relaxed. And I think you, did you crash? No, I was behind a couple of crashes. I certainly did not have a good race. Yes. You I did stayed not, upright. Yes, but Pete crashed and broke his hand. hand. Yeah. Keel crashed, and I think Alex crashed as well. And I guess Alex was kind of still in the world tour at the time. But I just had this thought of like, wait, wait, wait. We all left something that was dangerous and high risk and came to this, you know, thing because it was fun. And I was like, but they're all kind of, I saw the same expression on all of your faces as you would see at the end of, you know, a classic where you're like disappointed Mm -hmm. you didn't do better. And I just felt like that was kind of a reoccurring theme throughout the season. Um, it's not to say I didn't have fun this year, and I love the I love the new kind of players came into the scene and pushed the level even higher. Mm-hmm. But personally, I there were multiple times throughout the year when I felt kind of felt like, whoa, this has changed a lot, and I had a realization. And so I guess I would pitch the same question back to you. I mean, when you won Unbound in 2016, mm-hmm. to I mean, you didn't go to Unbound this year, but you did other events and you kind of saw the level of competition. I mean, what is, the, what is the thing that has changed? Because, I mean, obviously the, the level of competition has gotten better. Mm-hmm. But what is the, I mean, not the experience, but like what about it has become more intense? Because even at the time, Unbound in 2016 was still competitive. Everyone wanted to win who was there for the yeah. race. Um, I mean, man, from a, from a funny bullet point answer... I, I try to look back at 2016, and there was so little media there. Uh, so that is a, a sort of a unintended consequence of gravel building. Is now I can look back at any year and Google "unbound 2017 Ted King" and find a photo. You know. Yeah. Uh, whereas that year was so fresh and so new that that I can think of. I don't know. It, it reminds me of one's memory, which I think we all think of our memories as remarkably. Uh, true and sincere, but I think they're all quite plastic and, and memories do change and they, they hinge on photos and what somebody might insert a little anecdote to a story and then the, the one's memory will change. Um, yeah, in 2016, it was competitive, but I had two flats and one by a decent margin. 
um, that was a, I mean, man, talk about funny anecdotes. Like, I was in the lead. The rider who was in second place called his wife, and she picked him up on course. And then the third place rider reached that vehicle and got in the car as well. So the person who was in fourth place ultimately finished second. Um, wow. And that as, was... as a testament to the race was hot, and it was hard, and it was... It was uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it, to go way off track, I remember being at the tail end of the 1,030-mile Arkansas high country in the lead, about to set the FKT, and I remember thinking, if Laura drives by me right now in the final 25 miles, I would have gotten <laughs> in the car. car. I'm yeah. so effed. Like, yeah. you, you think sideways. So, yeah, that was a funny 2016 anecdote. Obviously, to fast forward to the present, whoever's in second place at at Unbound is not going to be like, you know what? I'm going to get in the car and quit right now. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the speed has increased. The times have uh, dropped. There have been hell-bent conversations about aero bars and, and uh, hydration packs and the like. You know what's kind of interesting to me is I used to tell people that the first hour and a half to two hours of Unbound is going to be some of the most boring bike riding of your life. Whereas now, fast forward to the present, I think your time in 2022 shaved an hour and a half off the previous time, your, your first ever Unbound. So you skipped that whole first section. Because I think yeah. you're, you're not riding a uh, casual 12 miles an hour. Yeah. Like it used to be boring because in a 200-mile race, no one wanted to show their cards before the first dicey section. And then the race yeah. starts picking up. Um, I would be... Yeah, to your point, you've experienced basically two seasons of gravel, and you have seen a vast increase in the in the past year. It's the gasoline is being thrown on the fire now. Things are really increasing. The industry is behind it. It's become mainstream. I have conversations with people who I never in my life would have ex ever expected them to say, "Hey, I just got a gravel bike." Like these are folks who don't even know what I do for a living. They just assume that I race in Europe still. And they're like, ah, "I got a, I got a gravel bicycle," and I'm like, "Oh man, that is cool. It is mainstream." Uh, what I'm dancing around is I would be a fool to not mention that Lifetime has uh, increased the game. Accelerated the competition. Accelerated the competition in yeah. a major way. And I remember thinking and having the conversations with guys like Russ Finsterwald and Keegan early in the year and, and hearing how gung-ho they were about the season ahead. It was something very refreshing for them. They are peak physical condition. They are top-notch pros at their, at their prime mountain biking has gotten a little bit stale and so why not increase the volume of their training and they're going to take that mountain bike intensity to gravel so i don't know i mean those things have only gotten quicker uh the speed has only gotten higher and the beeping of our child monitor is going to go off in one second. I, I've uh, heard that, and I've got one of my own at the house. You recognize that noise? I mean, I guess we should, we should preface this conversation that Ted and I still both love riding our bike. We still love gravel riding, gravel racing. I guess what we are discussing, I guess why I uniquely wanted to speak to Ted in this conversation is because you've seen more of this than I have, and you've seen the change that's happened quicker. And I guess when you mention these, and maybe this is kind of what has actually changed for me and I guess my opinion you know when you brought up aero bars and you know these the controversies that have come up at aid stations 
is that the group of people who are at the front has become larger. Mm-hmm. You know, I think back to 2021, there was a relatively small group of, you know, you and I both race in, in the men's category. So we, kn- I mean, 2021 especially, we knew kind of the 10, 15 guys who were going to be at the front of Unbound. Mm-hmm. We were all friends. You know, we kind of all knew what each other were doing. We could send a text message you know, you and me and Pete and, you know, Lawrence and, you know, and like, hey guys, we're going to, are you racing with a hydration pack or not? Yeah, I remember this yeah. uniquely last year at SBT, like, are we going to race with hydration packs or are we not? Mm-hmm. Someone said, no, we all decide, okay, we're not racing with hydration packs. We'll stop at the aid stations. This year, that group of 15 riders has grown to 50 riders who are competitive. Sure. And you and I don't know them all. There's people coming over from Europe. That group has become much bigger, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. But there's no way that someone <clears throat> outside of the event promoter can decide what's going to happen with, you know, these kind of unwritten rules of the race or this kind of this. I don't want to say etiquette, but like, what's going? How are we going to go about, you know, aid stations or aero bars? And I think that that is what has changed, and that's what's kind of caused these controversy. And no one's—I don't think anyone is necessarily right or wrong because we're still very much figuring out what it looks like. Mm-hmm. But the like anything in most you know situations a lack of communication has made these issues worse. Yes. Uh, it is hard to write unwritten rules. And I, I completely want to echo and reiterate. It, I'm not griping. I'm not going to complain in this conversation, and I'm not sad about it. Uh, I think it is good for cycling. I think it's especially good for American cycling, as we see. I mean, I feel like I say it in every podcast, like domestic road racing, which you and I are a product of, is in the toilet. And if this is what is going to reinvigorate cycling in North America, then that, I think that is a great, great thing. Um, yeah, you talk about being at, at a variety of races over the past year and a half, and you can count on the dozen or so riders or even half dozen riders who, who you, you are known are going to be contending the finish. And now you show up at any one of these races and yeah, you don't even know the people who are going to, show up and be contesting yeah. the finish. Uh, the field is that much deeper, and as a result, the speed is that much higher. Um, Brennan Wirtz was recently on my podcast, and um, he is a he's a former world champion rower, so he obviously has a massive engine, and he's gotten into cycling, and he's a very capable cyclist, and he's a race-winning cyclist. He had probably one of the strongest springs of anyone on two wheels here in 2022. Um, but he was the first example of somebody who has, who has come from a non-traditional background, wasn't a cyclocross racer, wasn't a road racer, wasn't a mountain biker, and he came to gravel and he's made a career of it. And he's garnered the sponsors to allow himself to say, yes, I'm a professional gravel rider. Professional because he's, he's creating a living from it, he's seeing results, and he's having a great time. Up until that happened, and he's in the same boat. I think he's been doing it for a year and a half, two years now. Up until him, I had, I did not think it was possible. I yeah. thought gravel was like, for all intents and purposes, and I, I might regret even saying this, the retirement tour. Yeah. As a testament to, to the fact that I have been incorrect, that is what has increased the game. Uh, there are so many riders in their young 20s who don't really see a future in other other genres of cycling, and so they're they're pursuing this. I even remember in two thousand uh, probably eighteen 
one of Adam Meyerson's athletes. Adam Meyerson, if you know him, you obviously know him. If you don't, he's a coach here in New England. And he was coaching a junior team, and one of his, you know, 15-year-old riders said, I want to be, become a gravel pro. And I was just like, what? Like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know what you mean by that. Go have a 10-year European career and then try to pursue gravel. Um, yeah, it's only sped up. It's only become more and more competitive. It's only gotten more, uh, I don't know if litigious is the word, but it, again, to go full circle to the answer to this question, you can't write unwritten rules. And as the sport gets more serious and there's more dollars on the line, for better or worse, rules need to be written. Yeah. I mean, I think it, one thing that dawned on me when, as we were sitting at dinner talking about your event rooted in my event over in Peachum is that we both host gravel events. Mm-hmm. That I feel like we both instill what we value in gravel in our events, mm-hmm. and they both either have rules or, you know, my event's not even a race, but your yep. event has distinct rules. Aero bars aren't allowed. Mm-hmm. I guess your race isn't necessarily long enough where you have to stop at an aid station. But yeah, that was a big point of uh, uh, tumult in 2021, where it was unwritten that everybody was going to stop, and then boom, and the lead group blasted through the feed zone. It's like, Wait, oh, wow. I was supposed to stop in 2021? Yeah, apparently. I don't know. <laughs> I, I didn't just the race promoter. Uh, and yeah, to put another insert in there, another event that we, we host is King Challenge, which is much like Peach and Fall Fondo, like unequivocally not a race. Yeah, you want to stop at the rest stops. Yes, yeah. that is a point. There's great food there. Yeah. Oysters at the finish. Yeah. Yeah. From the beginning, Peach and Fall Fondo was intentionally not a race. Yeah. King Challenge just celebrated our 12th year. From the beginning, it was intentionally not a race. As someone who's now experienced a whole bunch of races, do you have a preference? I mean, that, that's an that's a unintentionally weighted question. Um, well, you know, I guess we started, I started Peach when I was still racing on the road. And so what, yeah. I, you know, what I never got to do was ride bikes casually with my friends and with you know, fans and with neighbors. And so we started Peachum because I was like, you know, I'd finished a long season. The first year of the race was in October. I was like, I just want to ride bikes casually with people. And so that's what, that's how it started. And that's kind of how it's continued is like a casual ride with people with designated stops, you know, and it's, you know, we called it a Peachum Fall Fondo because it was even before I knew about gravel. We mm-hmm. didn't call it the Peachum Gravel Grinder or something because I was like, I've done a Grand Fondo before and this is kind of like a Grand Fondo mm-hmm. that wasn't competitive. It was casual. But I feel like at Rooted, you have a similar, there is a race there, and it is highly competitive amongst the people that are there racing. This year, I attended it and did the Little Sip. Mm-hmm. Sip of Sunshine is the full distance. Little Sip is the shorter distance. Yep. And I was like, wow, i got to stop at all the rest stops. You know, I had a great time. And I guess that's the beauty of gravel, and that's why I think it's important for people like you and I to have this conversation, because... Most people listening, most people who participate in a gravel event don't experience, maybe they read about the front of the race, but they don't actually experience the front of the race. They're not involved in the controversy. They're not Mm -hmm. taking action in the race that may cause controversy. Mm -hmm. And so the beauty of the event is that all these people are participating, but what people read about is this growing animosity or controversy that's happening at the front of the races, which I guess, you know, has both you and I get older. Although I, I realized this on the drive over. I think I am still younger than when you first did How old are you? Unbound, 31. Yep, I retired at 32. So my got, world tour career. So I've got a long time ahead. 
Well, then furthermore, you got Lawrence Hendam, who's showing no signs of slowing down. And he's no. like, he's up, he's Carl Becker's age. He's like 49. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kidding, kidding to you both. Um, but I guess, you know, there, I guess what I first fell in love with when I first did my first few gravel events was that it was, I was able to express myself through physical effort and the result was kind of, not secondary, but I got to express myself by riding hard. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like sometimes you are penalized for maybe being a little bit more casual in the race, <laughs> you know? Whether it's, you know, you take a little bit longer in the feed zones or you choose uh-huh. to stop. And I guess with the whole feed zone thing, um, you know, we were both at Gravel Locos this year mm-hmm. and, you know, Fabian did this mandatory rest stop. And I just thought about it. It's, it's similar when I think back to professional road racing when you can't get a bottle in the final 20K of a race. I'm like, this is so inhumane that mm-hmm. you can't, you're physically, it's illegal to have water. Mm-hmm. And when you look at gravel events and you're not actually allowed, or you, I mean, you could, but like you're out of the race if you get water. Mm-hmm. And I just think like something like this has to be, there has to be a better way to sort this out or to organize this where, because people are going to, the stakes are going to become high enough where people are willing to push themselves beyond what is advisable mm-hmm. to make that front group because they, you know, need to be there. But they came into the aid station, you know, 30 seconds later and they won't get water because they want to be in that group and they get 50 miles down the road mm-hmm. and they haven't drinking water for two hours. I'm like, that is crazy. Well, right. And then because these events are isolated, then you're outside of cell phone range yeah. and, or you decided to not bring a cell phone in that day because that's an extra couple ounces that you know that according to the latest so-and-so news.com article says that every ounce of weight matters. Yeah. There are, there are more and more risks being taken. Um, I forget exactly what you were saying just a minute ago, but it, it reminded me of these events, they intentionally celebrate the masses. Yeah. The masses are what support the industry and what support the sport. And if you're going to have a 3,000-person event, the majority of those 3,000 people are not professional cyclists. However, the biggest events draw the professional riders, and the professional riders dictate a lot of what is uh, in vogue, fashionable, whether it's nutrition, whether it's the equipment we're using, whether it's uh, any number of things, if we're using aero bars, if we're using hydration packs, and yeah, so there's how a we race. huge yeah. trickle-down effect from what happens in the pro race. And so as much as, as these races want to say all day long, we are, we are about the people, and many of them are, there is still a, a, a huge ramification to what pros show up and what pros do throughout the day. Yeah, and it's only professionalizing. I mean, it's funny what you were saying, like, uh, it, it, it's if, if you want to be casual on the day, and I'm I'm laughing because it, as you said that I was like, well, or being casual throughout the year. Like, I don't know if you remember this in our 2020, the year you won Unbound. Yes. In the post race interview, I asked everybody else who was on stage. I was like, what? Uh, how recently did you retire? Because residual fitness, I'm I'm a firm believer yeah. is a is a thing. Like you had re- you had retired from the World Tour the year prior. Lawrence Tendam, the same Pete. A year or so. Same year, yeah. Yeah. And I, at that point, had been out of the world tour for, what, five years or six years? And and the longer you're out, obviously, the it, it's almost like this rebound. You have to yeah. train more. Yeah. You have to catch up. You have to make up for this lost time. Because straight out of the world tour, yeah, you're freaking flying. But 
if you continue in the game, it's going to take a heck of a lot more work. Yeah. Well, I have this. I have this idea, and I haven't shared this on the podcast publicly, but Keel Ryan, and I, I do realize that this idea maybe suits people like you and me and Keel more than maybe someone up and coming like you know Evar, who won Unbound this year, or Keegan. Mm-hmm. And Keegan kind of threw this all at the window this year because he won pretty much every race he did. Yes. But this concept, and so you had the opportunity this year to ride a bunch of events for fun and mm-hmm. see the different, you know, see the other side of the event. Yep, yep, yep. You know, at SBT this year, I did the 100-mile event, started at the back, I was on an e-bike, and I had panniers, and I gave people sunscreen and helped people mm-hmm. fix flats and whatnot. And I was like, wow, this is like, there are people in way over their head. Like, people think it's crazy <laughs> that we did Unbound in nine hours and 20 minutes. I'm like, yeah. these people are so underprepared. Like, it was inspiring uh, to see what people sign up for and how little preparation they have. Uh-huh. And it was really inspiring for me to see, like, how broad the spectrum of people of of cyclists really is, and Keel pitched this to me. Maybe it was this year. Maybe at Gravel Locos down in in Heiko, this concept that if the big gravel events all signed up for this, you know, whether it's Gravel Locos, you know, Bobby's event, the you know Mid South Unbound SBT, if the winner of the event the following year cannot race the event. Mm-hmm. But they have to go to the event and participate. You know, so maybe do what I did at SBT. You mm-hmm. know, so for example, this year I would go back to Unbound, and rather than racing, I would start at the back and I would ride with the masses mm-hmm. as a support rider. You and I already kind of get this concept and the you know the eye-opening experience that it is. But there's a lot of people who don't see that side of it, mm-hmm. and I think it's positive for a number of reasons. And one, it I'll say devalues this prestige of winning. But to a degree, it does take a little bit of that, you know, kind of pride of winning because you can't go back the next year and race. Mm-hmm. The second thing is for athletes who are professionals and being paid to do this, it forces brands to sign a long-term partnership. So, hey, we know you can't race Unbound next year, but the following year we know you're going to race it. Mm-hmm. So we're going to give you a two-year contract or a three-year contract because we know you'll be competitive again. More likely than not, one rider's not going to win all the races. You know, you could win Unbound the next year you go and ride it, but you may not win SBT. You may not win, you know, Belgian Waffle Ride. Like I said, Keegan kind of threw a wrench <laughs> yeah. in the spokes this year because he won most events. But it would also give the athletes at the front of the events the opportunity to see what, how most people experience gravel events. And I understand it's easier for you and I or Keel to buy into a thought like this because... For us, winning maybe isn't as important or as you know crucial and life changing as someone like you know Russell or you know Lauren de Crescenzo or Sophia. But I'm curious what your thought process is around this rule or this suggestion. Uh, I think it's. I think that's lovely. I have heard a similar theory. Um. Ah, uh, man, oh, man. I mean, I almost want to answer that with a question of, can you define the spirit of gravel? Um, and no is a perfectly no. fine answer. <laughs> I mean, I guess for me, it's like the camaraderie. And I guess, you know, the one thing that I experienced last year, and I guess, you know, Unbound last year was a perfect example. Yeah. You were in a group with me, there was five of us, and we finished, and it didn't, I had this impression, you know, I happened to win, but I really didn't. I was so happy to be in that group. And yeah. also because it's such a long event anyways, like, I'm like, sweet, we're still with five people. We have 30 miles to go. Like, we're going to be yeah. done yeah. in, you know, an hour and 20 minutes. 
And I was like so proud of everyone in that group for just like riding hard together and working together mm -hmm. and being cohesive. And for me, that was like the spirit of gravel. Was mm -hmm. it like, it, yes, someone, everyone wanted to win, but the winning was almost secondary to like the cohesiveness of us like coming together with a really an objective of like, let's get to the finish as fast as we can. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was, the, and like we all got to the finish and everyone was happy with each other, you know, you and I, no one had an argument. Everyone was like, that was awesome. Mm -hmm. And everyone was proud of what we experienced together on that day. And I, I mean, I don't know if you were upset that, you know, you didn't win, but I assumed, and I saw you at the finish, I assumed that you're like, you know, your daughter, you're happy that you're, yeah. you made it to the finish. Uh -huh. and you, would you could celebrate the fact that you had made it to the finish and you had a great ride and you finished in, you know, the top 99.9% .9 of all finishers, and you can be happy with that. And for me, that is the spirit of the event. And you didn't, you know, you didn't have any crashes, no punctures. You know, you had this big event. And like, when you look at, you know, especially an event like Unbound, you know, if you finish in the top five, like, you know, you're within half a percent of the person who won the race. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at 10 hours and you break it down, if you finish, you know, you and Pete were, I don't know, one, one and a half, like, minutes behind us. You're essentially, we're all arrived at the finish line more or less together after 10 hours. Mm -hmm. And for me, that is the spirit of gravel is that we, you know, we all hung out together afterwards. We enjoyed it. And I know it gets a lot of different, you know, it's the spirit of gravel is such a meme at this point. But for me, like, I feel like I really experienced it in 2021. And I guess even at some events this year, you know, I think even at, you know, Gravel Locos and Heiko and again in Pueblo where like, we were all happy with whoever won, but it was kind of secondary to the experience that we shared together out on the roads. Brilliant. Beautiful. Uh, yes, I, I enjoyed my 2021 Unbound in, in a heck of a lot of ways, not least of which because I had broken my collarbone three weeks prior. And so the last place I expected to be was fourth. Yeah, fourth place on the day. Um, still on the podium. Still, yeah, five-place yeah. podium. Um, and yeah, it is because of the aftermath and having my daughter there and my wife there and and those four folks with whom I was rotating for the final whatever five hours. That was those are my people and that's what made me happy. Um, but it also reminds me of my first Unbound, and I wonder if there's any coincidence there. It's being at Commercial Street at 11 p.m. and yeah. watching people finish. And I think the same thing happens at Kona and, uh, and you know, deep into the night when you're watching people finish who literally have only picked up the bike for the first time a year prior or less than that. Um, and, like, that term gets bandied around so much, the spirit of yeah. gravel, and it is a meme, and it is funny, and is mountain biking the spirit of gravel, and, and is gravel following the full circle that mountain biking has gone over the yeah. past, call it, 30 years? And I don't know the answer to that, but what I've heard you say fun a handful of times, like the word fun, having fun and at this event, and these, like, that is the, that is the essence. That's what is magical about these events. Uh, and hopefully that, sh that is going to continue to shine through. Which is difficult at this crossroads of UCI coming into gravel. Yeah. Did you watch the UCI Gravel World Championships? I did. I don't know if I watched the whole thing. I mm -hmm. can't actually remember how much I watched. Maybe I tuned into part of it. Yeah. Um, and I guess, I mean, I'm going to be honest. I think we talked about this. I think what happened is exactly what I expected to happen was where these professional road riders just smoked everyone. Top 10. Yeah. All UCI road racers. 
I think I think that is correct. I've not double checked that, but I think that is correct. And in and, and fairness, the event is very different than something like Unbound. You know, it was shorter. Yep. It was much less technical. You know, most riders were on road bikes. Maybe the top mm-hmm. ten was all on on a road bike. Mm-hmm. Um, very flat course, which is not atypical of gravel, but very flat course. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess the whole thing, and maybe, you know, in fairness, maybe the thing will sort itself out, but it was all very confusing to me in the fact that it was then, I when I first had heard about it, I thought it was this qualification system that if you went to a race, you could qualify, and then you could go to the world championships. Turns out that federations got selections for the pro race, and if you qualified, you qualified for your age group. And one thing that occurred to me is I coach a rider, um, Jordan, who's with the Imani team, and he's from Uganda. And I guess what was disappointing to me to see in this is that it kind of eliminated all the opportunity that I found in gravel. Mm-hmm. You know, where you could be, you know, someone like Brendan. Mm-hmm. You know, he's probably, maybe he's had a road license, maybe he's never had a, you know, a cycling license on the road, but he could show up at Unbound and win Unbound without ever having a road license, without ever having to deal with a federation. And I think both of us race with USA Cycling. I think they have, you know, a part to play in cycling. But the fact that, you know, Jordan is from Uganda and there's a lot of corruption within the Ugandan Cycling Federation, he couldn't do the professional race at the Gravel World Championships because the Federation didn't support him in doing it. And they didn't, you know, even though they had spots, he wasn't allocated one, so he had to race his age group. And this is a rider that's 19 and he, you know, he was second or he was third here at uh, Vermont Overland in end of August. You know, Mm -hmm. he did SBT and Gravel Worlds and I think he was... 11th at Gravel Worlds in the original Gravel Worlds yeah, in Lincoln, the, the Nebraska. Nebraska version. Um, you know, and I, I coach him, and I was like, this is so cool that he gets to go be on the start line with, you know, Matthew Vanderpool and all these pro riders. And it was like, it wasn't until like two days before the race that he messaged me, and he's like, hey, I, I'm doing my age group because I can't do the pro race because, you know, the the bureaucracy of professional road cycling, which, mm-hmm. you know, has its pros, has its cons, but it was, it dawned on me very quickly that without really anyone's consent from the riders, we had kind of turned this immediately, or at least gravel cycling, as far as the UCI is concerned, into what we already have with road cycling, mm-hmm. where people from underprivileged countries or countries that don't have an organized federation don't have an equal opportunity that they have had in gravel racing where everyone starts on the start line together regardless of your federation, with regardless of your license, regardless of your age, gender, everyone's on the start line together. And that's one thing that I found so cool in gravel racing that immediately I saw, I'm like, whoa, 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 what happened here? Like, mm-hmm. this is what we have been building here in the U.S. and not necessarily me, but, you know, people for the last 15 years and we threw that all out the window for a rainbow jersey, mm-hmm. which... Can you wear the rainbow jersey at SBT or Unbound or Rooted? I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's not. I mean, I think you know. I came through. You know, I had a road cycling license from the age of fourteen or thirteen, mm-hmm. and that was like. I mean, I benefited greatly from you know USA Cycling, a federation that was has been you know very organized and very you know helpful and supportive to you know road cyclists and I guess mountain bikers and cyclocross riders. But seeing what I've seen now. You know, I was in a very fortunate position to, you know, be in a country that has a national federation and we had money for the national team growing up, but not every country has that. And so then we're kind of just putting ourselves in the same position that we had in road cycling. Uh, it's funny you talk about how 
how uh, the power and privilege of USA Cycling, and I, I have also benefited from their generosity, and I got to race in the U.S. national team, and a lot of that was on their dime. Having heard the podcast with Sarah Sturm as a guest on Pace McKelvin's podcast, where she talked about racing for USA Cycling in the pro women's race, and she had to buy her national team jersey, which I just thought was nothing but comical. Um, I think USA Cycling is getting behind gravel, is certainly trying to get behind gravel, is trying to catch up with the wave of popularity of, of cycling that is gravel, and yet they can't pony up a jersey like that. I don't know. Just to hear, hear an anecdote like that stinks. Who knows? Maybe they threw yeah. her a, a ton of resources elsewhere. So, so I don't want to chime in where it's not my place. Um, remind me the name of the athlete that you coach. Jordan. Was So Jordan... Jordan Schleck. Jordan Schleck. Did he earn his place at... Did he go to one of the qualifiers? He did, yeah. He Which qualified. is... Yeah. Bananas. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess that goes to show the, the level of corruption that exists. Um, with due respect to Ugandan cycling. Um, yeah, no shortage of words have been thrown at the UCI Gravel World Championships. Um, in the week or a handful of days aftermath, I had a couple of people be like, well, why, you've, been, you've been noticeably quiet. And I was unintentionally noticeably quiet. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I don't feel you like... You have two kids. I have two kids. I was very busy on. and I don't feel like... It, I, I don't want to be a... a presenter of media and here I'm an arbiter of what is true almost your opening words where it proved out the point that UCI pro road racers are the fastest people on two wheels Yeah, which is something that I uh, agree to their job is to train for four to seven hours a day for years and years and years on end which is something that I, especially with two kids, don't have time to do in the irony of gravel races getting longer and longer, longer than a heck of a lot of uh, uh, traditional UCI road races. Um, if anyone ever jokes about the, the skill set of a rider and their dexterity on a bike, like I mean, of, of a pro road rider, the, they and we in our former lives were paid to practice bike riding, like I said, for four to seven hours a day. So as much as somebody might be a sketchy rider, they're probably world-class. So therefore, to go off-road, to ride on gravel roads, Stratobianchi, cobbles, like that takes uh, the 1% of the 1% to allow that in the first place. So the, the tree I'm barking up, which is the same one you have, is, yeah, it's no surprise to me that those, the top 10 were all UCI pros from the road. Uh, I guess my question and, and something that I'm not quite certain the answer of is, is there such thing as a gravel specialist? Um, is there a gravel specialist? I mean, I would say up until, I guess for the last two years that I've been doing gravel, I would say that I'm better at gravel, the long gravel races than I was at professional road racing. Would I say I'm a gravel specialist? No. So there probably isn't a gravel specialist. Um, no, I mean, I mean, maybe someone like Keegan actually is a gravel specialist. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know people before Unbound were like, oh, he's, he doesn't have the endurance. I'm like, 
Yeah. He won 24 hours old Pueblo. He's, he can ride for 24 <laughs> hours. I think, I think he has the endurance. Uh-huh. But I don't really know if gravel has yet been defined what it is. Sure. You know, what is it? Is it 200 miles like unbound or is it 100 or 200K like the you know, UCI Gravel World Championships? Mm-hmm. And this is, and I don't want to say that there's not space for the UCI Gravel events, but my thought, I think in 2019, did you do the Grode to Kansas? Is yes. that what it was called? Uh, 18. 18? 19. 19. Why can't they call it the UCI Grode World Championships? Because it, it could, you know, when, you, when I saw the race, you know, people were doing bottle hand-ups. It looked v- identical to a road race yes. other than the surface that they were riding on was more Strada Bianchi than Strada Bianchi. Mm-hmm. There's no reason we can't have those type of races, but it's very different than what gravel racing that we had and that has traditionally been seen here in the U.S., mm-hmm. where it's like self-supported. And I guess that for me has been one of the most enjoyable things, you know, especially in 2021 when most, well, every event I went to by myself, you know, I never flew with a mechanic or a support team or anything. You know, the mm-hmm. night before Unbound in 2021, I learned that you have to have lights on your bike. From, thankfully, Pete texted me. And that you had to have a support crew in the aid station. So thankfully, I was there with Wahoo and, you know, a guy had just had a van and said, hey, I can come out and give you your, <laughs> you know, your hydration packs. Uh-huh. And so it worked out perfectly. You know, this year I did fly with, you know, my buddy Corey here from Vermont, who is, you know, is a mechanic. But I really enjoyed feeling like a junior again. Yeah. And like where you're kind of self-reliant. You know, I, I really missed the days of, you know, going over, you know, growing up in Bend, driving over to Portland and pumping up my tires and eating oatmeal in the car, like mm-hmm. before a 10-mile time trial where you're kind of self-reliant. And I really think that that was kind of the beauty of gravel for me, and still maybe is, is that I love being self-reliant, where if something goes wrong, it's my fault. Yeah. You know, if I don't have sealant in my tires or if I forget to, you know, pack my pockets right, I can't, you know, you've been on a world tour bus. Most problems for a world tour ride are someone else's problems. You're blaming okay. your mechanic, you're blaming yeah. your massage guy gave you a massage too hard. <laughs> there, it's always someone else's issue. Right. But in gravel, I felt like, you know what, if something goes wrong, it's going to be my fault. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed the fact that that was the case. Mm-hmm. But watching the UCI race, it kind of was just the same, you know, status quo of what professional road racing is, is where you're dependent on other people to support you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a long-winded answer back to, is there a gravel specialist? But I, I really don't think we know yet because we don't really have it defined enough to know what the discipline, I mean, I guess, question back, is there a road specialist? Because you look at someone, Vanderpool or Van Art, they're winning mountain bike races, they're winning cross races, they're winning yeah. road races. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things with the generation now of cyclists is that people are, you know, they're versatile. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I, especially maybe, I guess you too, we came through an era where American cyclists were Everyone wanted to be a climbing GC rider because that's what we saw on TV. That we, mm-hmm. saw, we saw Lance and Levi and Floyd and Vandeveld, and they're all climbing GC Tour de France contenders. So we all wanted to be that. We didn't do cyclocross. We didn't do mountain bike. We didn't even want to do the classics. Mm-hmm. I guess you maybe want to do the classics. I didn't because I wanted to be, I wanted to be the next you know, yellow jersey, American yellow jersey winner. Right. And so we put ourselves in a box. And I think over the last couple of years, we've seen these riders come through, you know, Pidcock and whatnot, where they've opened up kind of the avenue of 
you can be a cyclist mm-hmm. and you can race mountain bike and road and cross and gravel, which I think is awesome. So I really don't know if there's a specialist of any discipline now. I mean, I think Pogacar, I think he's the, is he the Slovenian national cross champion? Uh, I know he talked about toying in cyclocross, which, yeah, everybody might be like, Haha, what does he know how to do off-road? And then you watch Strada Bianchi where he won by like 17 minutes. Yeah, I mean, a good bike rider is a good bike rider. Exactly. I mean, yeah. Uh, I feel very lucky as I look back at my career. And from 2011 to 2014, I was teammates with Peter Sagan, who I think reinvented this category of like what it means to be a good bike racer. And because he was good in the short GC, he was a yeah. decent, really good uh, prologue specialist. He was a decent time trial. He could climb, he could sprint, he could. He won Tour of California. He did. Won Tour of California, won Tour Swiss, or maybe five stages Tour Swiss one year. Uh, and he's, I call him a circus animal on the bike because yeah. he was doing these no handed wheelies and it, it, it raised the level of talent on two wheels. And if you think back, okay, shoot, that's almost a dozen years ago. How old was Pidcock a dozen years ago? How old was Vanderpool a dozen years ago? Like, they're all watching him. They're watching him, and that's increasing the game across the board. I think we see the same thing in North America. Uh, and those, right, those skills are going to translate to road riding, to cyclocross, to mountain bike, to anything. It's just a, it creates a more skilled rider. Um, it's almost like what creates a gravel specialist is that is skill across the board, but but a true gravel specialist learns a very steep learning curve the first year they do an event. Yeah. What it means to go through a feed zone. Oh my gosh, like the entire group is gone and here I am trying to put air in my tires. Or yeah. or what it's like to set your alarm for, for 3.30 in the morning because your race is going to start at 6 and you're booking your own hotel and you're booking your own food. I mean, like you're suddenly... Well, you are your team. You are your team. I'm almost interrupting myself as I say that because now more and more teams are coming to gravel and that to go full circle from 45 minutes ago or whatever, it it is professionalizing. Yeah. And perhaps there was an inevitability to that from the beginning. Um, Man, that's almost like the, the bigger question. Is there an inevitability to gravel becoming as popular as it has yeah, I mean, I guess I've I've spoken extensively with my buddy Marshall, who I think you know. Uh-huh. Um, and he did gravel in 2019 when I guess you know was I don't want to say the the peak, but maybe like the, kind of the I don't want to say the golden era because we don't know what's coming. Mm-hmm. But like, and he just keeps reminding me, he's like, Ian, like you had a you had a sweet ride, like you got to experience like the, the not the heyday, but like I mean, I feel like it's everyone like oh, remember the good old days, and I feel like I'm experiencing those very quickly. Like mm-hmm. the good old days were like they're not that far behind me, but like. They were there, and it's changing quickly. And and part of it maybe is the fact that you know both of us have kids, we have other jobs, we have other things going on, and we had this amazing period when we could live a way more balanced life than we did in the world tour. We could still be competitive, but we our life as a whole was more rounded. And we're and I guess that's maybe what's happened for me is that we've started to. There was a moment this year before Unbound when my wife got sick. I think it was actually before Gravel Locos. And I was, you know, for the last year and a half prior to this, I was like, kind of lived like a normal person. Like, if my wife was sick, cool, I'm going to sleep in the bed with my wife because that's normal. Mm -hmm. But when I was on the road, I was like, hey, my wife's sick. Like, I need to be cautious. I have a big race coming up. I have to be careful. 
And I had this whole internal dialogue of like, what am I supposed to do here? Like, I know Gravel Locos is coming up. If I get sick, <laughs> I might not, you know, I might not feel good. I might, you know, it was kind of this, I kind of resorted and defaulted back to this mindset of being that professional road rider. Uh-huh. And that was like, a, there was a few times this year when I kind of had to like, you know, slap myself and be like, Ian, you're at a different phase in your life. And I didn't have that at all in 2021. Mm-hmm. But this year I felt those, those corks of being a professional road cyclist kind of creep back in of like, you know, what should I do for my sport over what should I do for, not for my family or you know, like just these little things that you're thinking about yourself before you're thinking about, you know, maybe your community, your family, your friends. Like this little bit of selfishness starts to come back in. I'm like, wait, what am I doing? Like, this is not how I felt 12 months ago. And I started to feel that again. And I think it's because everything got cranked up. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't, nothing changed for me. Like I didn't have sponsors or partners telling me like, hey, we need you to win Unbound again. It was this internal, you know, kind of default of remembering what I did, you know, before Paranese or before the Dauphiné. And I was like, oh boy, this is, this is a slippery slope. Yeah. You know, it's very easy to go back down that, down that rabbit hole. Big time. Um, yeah, the last time that, that you were on my podcast was, I want to say, July 2019. Um, and certainly a big timestamp in there is having a pandemic and the world going on pause and the world going sideways and the world getting flipped upside down. A lot has happened in your life since then. A lot has happened in mine. Uh, we've both become parents. Hinging off the concept of, of not getting into the potential of not getting in bed with your wife when she's not feeling well before a race, how has parenthood affected your outlook on, on racing? Um, I mean, I think this was, it kind of already started to set in in 2021, you know, because I stopped racing because of a series of crashes and concussions. So the last thing I ever want to do is have to call my wife or have someone have to call my wife. Well, hey, Ian crashed, he hit his head, he's in a hospital. Mm-hmm. Like that is like number one, like finish the race and be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my wife and daughter did attend a few races with me this year and that just brings so much perspective to bike racing. You know, mm-hmm. just getting back to the finish and seeing your wife and daughter, I'm like, oh wow, like I'm, I'm done. And it's also motivation to actually get home quicker. Yeah, <laughs> you sure. know, because I'm like, cool, yeah. I get home, you know, as fast as I can to, to get back to them. Um, and I think that's kind of been the beauty of gravel events is like that I want to take my wife and daughter to events. And that's something that I'm, I mean, I guess neither of us had, you know, a daughter or even a wife when we were racing, but oftentimes you, or sometimes you would see that as a distraction at a race. Like when I'm, you know, when you're at the Tour de France or when you're at the Pyrenees or the Giro, you just want to like do your thing and like you're working. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily feel like I'm always working now at races. Like I'm there to have fun and to socialize and, you know, introduce my wife to people who I speak about because I meet at other events. But I think it's changed mostly, I guess, you know, I really value when I have the freedom to ride anymore. And even though it's still part of my job and my livelihood to ride my bike, it feels more like a privilege now to ride than it does feel like a requirement mm-hmm. to ride. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that I came over here this afternoon and we got to go for, I'm like, we rode for what, an hour and a half? I'm like, sweet, yeah. we got out for an hour and a half. Yeah. Yeah. If I was in the world tour, I'd be like, I'm not, I might not even get kitted up because I might just take a rest day. Yeah. I'm like, what's the point of riding for an hour and a half? <laughs> it's not worth it. Like, I might as well just stay home and rest. Mm-hmm. So it's made me value the time that I do get to ride my bike because I really do love, and I think both of us, we love riding our bike. 
and like we're willing to like you know make still make some sacrifice and spend some time away from our families mm-hmm. to ride our bike. I think oftentimes because we know it makes us, and I'm sure you know your wife sees this as well that you're oftentimes happier if you have ridden <laughs> than have you you know had right. you just decided to not ride that day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and becoming a parent has given me an enormous appreciation for our colleagues in the world tour who are married and had kids. I cannot believe that existed. Uh, because, yeah, to your point, when you're getting through a stage of the Dauphin and the Giro, whatever it is, like you are pouring every ounce of your soul selfishly into performance on that day, on that week, on that season. And so, yeah, to now think with the benefit of hindsight and the benefit of parenthood two times over how you can even fathom. I mean, I guess to then take one big lateral step, it hinges on the back of the spouse who is bearing a heck of a lot of weight. Yeah, and I guess that's, I mean, were you teammates with Craddock and Lawson? No. I, no. Uh, were we teammates? No. He came to, um, to yeah. Garmin the year that After, I left. Yeah. But he's someone, he has two kids now. Mm-hmm. And I guess that you, and I've said this to multiple people, I could have not been a parent and raced in the world tour. Yeah. I just couldn't fathom like being as selfish as you need to be and having a kid and seeing those sacrifice, you know, going, especially now, altitude mm-hmm. camps, you know. Yeah. And I've spoken to Lawrence Tandam about it as well, like just how much he has changed around his family doing gravel racing versus road racing. And, you know, your mindset is astronomical. And I guess that's one thing that I would hope. And maybe you and I have this unique perspective because we've seen the other side, we've seen kind of what gravel racing was. And we would hope that like the athletes can continue to have this balance that you and I have both experienced, the difference between being a professional road racer and a professional gravel racer. And I just hope that like that balance can stay in perspective for athletes. Mm-hmm. And because it is becoming more competitive, the tendency is going to be to make more sacrifices, spend more time away, do altitude camps, you know, all these things. But I just hope that like athletes can realize, and people who haven't done this before, you know, people who are coming, you know, someone like Brendan, he's a perfect example. If he doesn't know the sacrifices that a world tour rider makes, that he can somehow keep balance and still be competitive. And maybe that does mean that the level of the sport is slightly lower than professional road racing. And that's okay. But hopefully the athletes can like live a more healthy and a more balanced life. And I don't know if that's necessarily possible because it will continue to progress, but I guess that's what I would hope for. I, I sincerely wonder if that is possible. Uh, if you take a look at somebody like Keegan, who is, he has the chops to speak the obvious truth to be in the world tour tomorrow. Yeah. His strength-to-weight ratio and his bike dexterity is absolutely world-class. Uh, he obviously has success at, at lifetime. He wins the overall, and he wins five out of six races, or four out of six, and is in second twice. Five out of six. That's a lot. <laughs> uh, so there's only going to be one number one, and and... All people want to all all gravel aspiring gravel cyclists are going to aspire to that. At the opposite end of the spectrum, might be like an aspiring gravel influencer who yeah. is is intentionally going to be slow, but intentionally try to to create influence. And in that mix, in that wash, 
is going to be an ever greater volume and ever greater number of people, but there's only ever going to be the top-notch rider, and there are going to be a lot of people aspiring to be that top-notch rider. And I think that increased professionalism, increased volume and training, increased... Uh, I mean, Keegan, as a result of social media, is pretty transparent about uh, his meticulousness to the bike and, and, and having a mechanic and all these things that, that the young up-and-coming cyclist is going to want. And so I, I just don't see any way the sport is going to slow down. I don't know if it's going to have that, like you said, a notch down. Of like, well, we'll still keep this, this lifestyle element. No, because it just takes, I mean, it's the same with aero bars or the aid station. It just takes one person to do something, mm-hmm. and then everyone has to jump on board. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it takes one world tour team going to altitude camp for oh. three weeks, and then, well, they won the race, sure. so we all need to go to altitude camp. I guess another thing that I realized <clears throat> last year, you know, there was this, was it power gravel, power pure gravel, power ranking, mm-hmm. something like that. Sure. And I wound up winning it, and I was like, well, and this is one thing I don't understand why we need, and this is, I guess, somewhat why I don't fully understand the gravel world championships. Is like, why do we need a best rider in this discipline? Yeah. And, and especially in gravel, because the events are so different. Yeah. You know, Unbound and SBT and BWR and Rooted and Overland, like they're all different events. Mm-hmm. Can't everyone have a place, like a course that is best for them? And I think that's what should be celebrated. I think that was what was so cool about 2021 was that different riders won different races and they were the best rider on that day, on that course. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I just, I like, you know, when Alex won SBT or when, you know, Pete won BWR, I was like, that's like, they were just better than me. That's awesome. Like, congratulations. Like, they Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to beat them on that day in that course and those conditions. And I think that was what was so cool. And the fact that we have to like put an individual on a pedestal as the best rider on an individual season. I mean, Keegan, again, once again, throws <laughs> you know, a wrench in the spokes here because he did win most events. Yeah. But I think it's cool that the diversity of the courses can allow for different riders to excel at different events and have you know the best or the world champion does seem a bit... I don't know. I guess as I get older, I become less focused on like the prestige of things and more about like the experience, not the experience, but like the how the race was won or how the people conducted themselves more so than did they win or did they lose. It's almost this hypothetical could these races exist in a vacuum with no media, with no attention, like just let them be what they are for the sake of being. And by that, I mean, this year, 2022, and I think we're going to see a lot more of it in 2023, is a lot of Europeans and, and folks from outside of North America coming to the United States to experience gravel here. Because North American gravel is OG gravel, and it's different than what is happening elsewhere. It's different than what's happening in Europe. And it's intriguing. And as, as a result of media and as a result of cycling news and velo news being in the headlines, like gravel is in the headlines week in and week out for, for yeah. nine months straight. That's created the intrigue, whether it is a superlative, whether it, whether it is being the best on the day, the best, the gravel rankings, the power rankings. All of that has created this intrigue and momentum and, again, inevitability of coming to America and increasing the game. Because with 
I was going to say with some exceptions, like people want to seek the best out of themselves. And if so, if you're going to be the best age grouper, that's what they want to be. If they want to prove something to their, their spouse or their neighbor, that's, that's what they're trying to prove. And if they are an elite or professional athlete, then they're at the, the tip of the field increasing the speed. So were it not for media, social media, who knows? Uh, it reminds me of Mark Weir, who is a super... Again, to use OG twice in the same uh, breath. Mountain biker, OG mountain biker. Uh, phenomenal Northern California mountain biker. Uh, I remember going to a Cannondale event, I don't know, probably a half dozen years ago, and he talked about going to the Alps and riding in the Alps for a week straight and not one time going on social media, and it just seemed kind of crazy. Yeah. Because now we live in this age of like, look at me, here's my selfie, here's my thing, here's my... But to do it in a vacuum and do it for the experience and do it for the the landscape around you, it just it it was it was aspirational hearing that. And I was like, that is freaking cool. It's cool for the sake of cool. Yeah, I mean, I guess I had kind of different note, but something similar. Nico Roche, who is a 15 year world tour rider, mm-hmm. um, he came over recently to do Belgian Waffle Ride Lawrence, Kansas. Yeah, yeah, and then um, he did Big Sugar, mm-hmm. and he went to the Sunflower and. Lawrence, Kansas, and, you know, which is bike shop there. So he sent me a picture of my Unbound bike from 2021 is hanging up there. Mm-hmm. And he took a picture with the bike and with Dan Hughes. And he's like, hey, I'm at this cool bike shop. I'm like, you know Dan Hughes won Unbound four times? Yeah. Like, what, really? And it just, it just showed, it was like a reminder of like, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. I mean, he, his last win was in maybe 2000 and... Probably 14. Uh, was it four, 14, 14, 14? Yeah. But he won the race four times, and just to realize that now you have Nico Roche, who's you know dad yeah. was a professional cyclist. You know Nico won, I think, stages at all three Grand Tours, mm-hmm. or at least you know several Grand Tours. And just like that, and I, the history is like almost, you know, he, he just like, oh, this is the bike shop owner. I'm like, mm-hmm. no, this guy is like one of the founders yeah. of. Yeah. You know, he's in the you know there's this gravel Hall of Fame, and like he holds the record for the most wins at Unbound. But there's just this like disconnect of the history. I think that's one of the cool things about road cycling is that there is this you know, very unique and distinct history of the sport. And as the sport becomes more global and gravel, it's like kind of being lost where it started, where it came from, you know, how it started, you know, why it started, where it started. And that was like a very, and that's, you know, that's within 10 years. It reminds me of this sort of hand-holding as one is getting into gravel, because gravel is so new. To anyone who's not experienced it, it is, uh, it's very foreign. You don't know what to do. You're not. You don't know literally what you're supposed to do. Are you supposed to wake up early, or or create your own meals, or bring your own mechanic or personnel, so on and so forth? And I say that because Dan Hughes was that person for me. It was yeah. both Dan and Rebecca Rush, the two winningest unbound racers in history, held my hand my first year and taught me. Okay, this is this is where you're going to want to stay and don't forget to book your hotel early and you're going to need somebody in the feed zones and so on and so forth. And as you were getting into gravel, like that community was there and you reached out to... Yeah, well, even I did a podcast with you and asked you about feed zones. Yeah. <laughs> like, Ted, what uh-huh. do I need to do here? Yeah. And now Nico's reaching out to you. So it's, I guess my point is it's almost like we can be cards close to our chest Yeah. and we can keep our secrets or... Hopefully that spirit of gravel is that we're going to be candid. We're going to to, to be transparent and, and open up and, I don't know, somehow have that full appreciation for 
OG gravel, like the Dan Hughes, the Rebecca Rush. And yeah, and maybe that is the like, spirit of gravel. And that is one thing fun. that I have found cool about this is you and I both have a lot of experience in racing bikes. And, you know, I did a whole podcast on like my tips of gravel. And it's literally like everything that I do, trying to like relay that information because most people haven't done a gravel event mm-hmm. and they have no idea what to do and how to prepare for it. So it's like passing on this information that we have and the minute it becomes too competitive where like you start to hold secrets, you know, because road cycling is all about secret, you know, what pressure you can run for a bay. Yeah. No, no team is ever going to tell you which pressure they right. run for a bay because that's their secret. And so maybe that, is, maybe that is the spirit of gravel, Ted. Maybe it is sharing what you have learned with other newcomers or competitors. I don't think ketones are the spirit of gravel. Um, no, I was actually sent a box recently. Were you? Of ketones. And I still haven't used them. Check my eBay. Um, I, have never, I have never used them, and I really don't know what... I, mean, I guess I love... It's even, it even is the same with like gels. Yeah. Like I don't really take many gels with me because I love eating food too much. <laughs> and anything that like prevents me from being able to chew food is something I don't necessarily want to want to consume because I, then I can't chew food. What you've just said is literally the conversation I had with Laura this morning when she asked me why I don't like smoothies. Because we make I'm smoothies for same. Hazel yep. every morning. I'm like, I just would rather eat a banana. Yep. Well, it's the same <laughs> with what I don't eat. Under. I don't like milkshakes. I'd much rather have an ice cream cone than a milkshake because I want uh, to like use a spoon and not suck something down. I want to yeah. physically use a spoon and eat it, but... Couldn't agree more. Well, anyways, I think we uh, got some good stuff out there. Any final final words? 2023? Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, yeah, if we go like make this another hour-long conversation, how was your 2022? And tell me about 2023. Uh, I'm curious how many folks are going to listen to this conversation if they've gotten this deep into it. Oh, and, I think a lot of people are going to like this, Ted. And I'm curious how many are going to say, those two curmudgeonly jerk holes they the sport has passed them by and now they're angry we're hanging on um you know okay let me interrupt myself i love jeff kabush's point what keep riding till the fun stops yeah that's been his jam and and he's been saying that for a very long time and i still love riding a bike i think you still love riding a bike I'm now thinking of a Greg LeMond quote, which is what? Uh, it doesn't get easier, you just go faster. <laughs> and now I'm thinking in the, in the arc of one's career. We've only gotten faster, but now it's getting harder and we're actually going slow. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it, you start getting slower, but it starts getting more fun. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Well, I think that's the whole thing is like <clears throat> finding ways to continue to make this fun mm-hmm. is is important. And, you know, at some point, you do slow down. Someone's mm-hmm. going to become faster than you. But I mean, I look at someone like you know your recent guest, Carl Decker, Yuri Oswald. You know, the, you know Rebecca Rush. They're not necessarily winning races anymore, but they still love riding the bike. They're mm-hmm. having fun. They're doing it a different way than they did it. So I think the people who are able to adapt continue to find find joy and love for two wheels. Truth. Uh, it reminds me of. Some of my best days this year were last best ride, Rebecca's private Idaho, uh, Gravel Locos, Big Sugar. I mean, doing the events that I wasn't actually competitive at, 
I was riding them. Sure, I like to ride hard, so I rode pretty hard, but I wasn't in the heat of the race. That was still super fun. Peach and Fall Fonda, King Challenge, those are two of my favorite days of the year, like hands down. Peanut Pop. butter bacon sandwiches at King Challenge. Right. Always, always a, that's what I remember most about King Challenge is yeah. the rest stops. Bingo. So, I don't well, know. Keep it one, fun. One, last question. We yes, can sir. both answer this. One event that you're looking forward to next year that you may be doing that you have not done this year. Uh, is there any event that you would like to do next year that you have not yet done? Because I know you and Carl talked about I mean, there's so many events out there. Yeah. I would love to do uh, Oregon Trail Race, that stage race out there. Um, I, man, I really want to go back to Europe. It, it's been a while since I've been back in Europe, and I have not experienced European gravel. And whether I do a European gravel race or just, you know, I've trained in so many cool places in Europe, I'd love to go back there. I would be lying if I didn't mention I'm intrigued by Tour Divide. It's it, a race like that. And some of my favorite days, when I say days, I, I mean plural days on the bike, are, are being so far out of your comfort zone. James Bay Descent, Arkansas High Country. Uh, yeah, to be able to look back on something where you just know that you're so far out of your comfort zone is, is refreshing. So that's kind of intriguing. Mm, I don't know. Whether I do any of those is up in the air. You? Uh, maybe a mountain bike race in Africa. Cool. Um, but... Equally, I would like to go because neither of us have done a gravel race in Europe. Yeah. I would love to do, I've heard great things about Flanders gravel, mm-hmm. which is in, yeah, I mean, it's in Flanders. It's very similar to Tour Flanders, but, and also thinking doing like the Copenberg on a gravel bike sounds way better than doing it on a road bike. Yeah. Oh my gosh, dude, when the slate first came out, I was like, why yeah. is anybody riding a road bike? You yep. guys are knuckleheads. This bike has suspension. Yeah, big 42 tires, 38 tires sounds way better. Are you familiar with the... Uh, Vermont Gravel Growler. Is that the one that goes to all the breweries? Yeah. I've heard of it. Why does, why, like, should we go create one of those in Belgium? Can you imagine going to all oh, the Trappist breweries? That would, in the Ardennes, yeah. in West Flanders? That would actually be cool. You know Allagash Brewery? Yeah, in Maine. So Allagash, man, they're an old company at this point, 35 years old. They've been producing Belgian beers here in North America, which I know this history because the dude who founded the company is a Middlebury grad, and we're very proud of our co-alma mater. Um, He and I became acquainted while I was living in Europe and racing the classics, and at the same time that the Belgian classics were going on, like the spring of every year, he would take all of his, I think, five or ten-year employees to Europe and purely go on a beer tour. Really? And they had no idea that these bike races were going on. This happened to me in Flanders in April. Just try to go to Ghent on this morning, and you'll see... 250,000 people. He's like, no, we're going to the brewery. (laughs) Oh, man. That's how to keep it fun. Yeah. Well, I've been speaking to Lawrence about this as well, doing some things that are both competitive, but finding a way to also do some things that are fun. So Mm -hmm. we'll wrap it up there. And actually, your because you brought it up, your favorite Belgian beer. Uh, Man, for... Name dropping sake, I have one West Bleeder in, in my fridge downstairs. Do you? Yeah. Which every like six months, I think, why haven't I drank that? Where do you uh, get that? Man, I don't even remember. I've probably had it for six years. I got it one of the last times I was in Europe. Uh, where do you get it? You go to the brewery. That's for one. Yeah, because you can only buy it there, I think. Uh, I don't know. I love a good Duval. Yeah. You? 
Schmay. Mm, yes, I think the Roquefort Triple yes. is my favorite. That with some frites, it's like almost mm -hmm. chocolatey with some French fries. <sighs> I didn't yeah. know that mayonnaise belonged on <laughs> yeah. French fries, but this is amazing. Some samurai sauce. Uh -huh. Yeah, one of those. And uh, yeah, a big trade for Bernadus. St. Bernadus 10. Man, we should just have a Belgian beer drinking event. Maybe we could start a bike tour of Vermont with Belgian beers. I love it. <laughs> um, well, speaking of fun and not fun, you know what's not going to be fun? Your wake up time tomorrow. Yes, 3.30 alarm off to the airport. That's right. That's too early. Wake up at four. All right. Well, uh, if we haven't said it on the top of the show, folks, you should listen to Breakfast with Boz. And you should listen to King of the Ride. Perfect. Thanks, Ted. Over and out. Thanks, Ian. Thanks again, Ian. Thank you, listeners. Folks, if you enjoyed this podcast, the single most impactful thing you can do help expand this podcast is to tell your friends and family about it. Literally, that's it. It helps tremendously. It also doesn't hurt if you spend some time at athleticgreens.com slash Ted King. Give that a try too. That's it. That's all. Until next time, please enjoy the ride.